You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Samuel chapter 27. A lot of scriptures this morning. Stay with me. We're going to work our way through this sort of quickly to set the stage on where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> so we'll start 1 Samuel 27. We've been talking now for some time about the life of David. In 1 Samuel, he's been on the run. After the great victory of Goliath, from there, everything went south. And David gets to a point in his life where he says to his friend Jonathan, I'm telling you the truth, there's only one step between me and death. It's desperate. And we find him here in chapter 27 of our text. He comes to this point and he says this, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape unto the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape from from out of his hand. And so David arose, and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And and in the story here, you'll find that that David now leaves his homeland. He is a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. Saul has been chasing him down like an animal, looking to take his life. And he has this thought, and I want you to notice, he, he never consults the Lord. He doesn't ask the priest for direction. He just has this thought, one day I'm going to perish. The only hope I have is if I get out of Israel, go to the land of the Philistines, and I stay there. And hopefully by doing this, Saul will despair of chasing me down, and that will be the end of it. This is his plan. And so what he does is he takes his men, 600, and, and realize this, at this time, he's not just bringing his men with him, it's their families as well. There's probably between two to 3,000 people that David is now responsible for. And they go to Achish, the king of Gath, a Philistine. And Achish is kind to David. In our text, you'll find that he, he allows him to be there. Uh, look, if you would, now at verse number 4. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more for him. So Saul's done now. Verse number 5, David says to Achish, Hey, listen, this is a royal city. You're the king. We don't have to stay there. Send me someplace else. I don't want to take up all the land here. We've got a pretty big population. Send me to another city. And so the king of Gath, Achish, says, Okay, I'm going to send you then and your folks down to Ziglag. And he sends David down there. And something very interesting happened. Ziglag is about oh, 25 miles uh, south here. It, it borders Simeon and Judah. They are, they are tribes of Israel. And, and it's sort of the farthest holding that the Philistines have. And so when David goes down there, he tells King Achish that he is fighting against the enemies of the Philistines. And King Achish believes that David now and his men are engaged in sort of guerrilla warfare against Judah, against his own people. But that's not what David's doing. David is making raids, but they're not on the enemies of Achish, the king of the Philistines. They're on the enemies of Judah, the allies of the Philistines. And Achish has no idea. And for almost a year and a half, the Bible says a year and four months now, 
David with his men are living down there in the southern portions of the Philistine uh, territory and making raids now against the enemies of Israel. Look at chapter 28. And remember, David never asked the Lord if he should go here. This was David's idea. This was David's plan. And so far, it has worked well for him. But then comes chapter 28. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go with me to battle and thy men. And now David's in trouble. Because Achish says, hey, you've been here. I think you've been faithful to me. And so now there's a big battle coming against the Israelites who he supposes David has been fighting with all along. And he says, David, you and your men are coming with us. And we're going to fight the Hebrews. And I don't know what's going on in David's mind right now, but this is problematic. And look what David says then in verse number 2. And David said to Achish, surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, um, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. And David, I don't, I don't know what he means by this. He says, okay, I'm going to go to battle with you, and you will see what your servant can do. You'll see what we're made of. And I have a hunch that what David is saying is, hey, we'll go to battle with you. This is not a good situation, but when we get there, I'm going to turn. If he's not going to fight against Saul, God's anointed, he certainly isn't going to fight against his brothers. And so he says to, to Achish, you'll see what we can do. And I, and I have a hunch that maybe David's thinking, yeah, you'll see what we can do against you. David is very deceptive here. And let me just remind you of something. As we read the Word of God, the Bible will record events without giving commentary at times. And it tells what David said and what David did here. It is not condoning his deception. Listen to me. There is a law of sowing and reaping. What, what we sow, eventually we reap. And in David's life, you're going to see later on in his own life, his very own son sows deception to David. But David says, you'll see what I can do. And so David agrees to go to battle with Achish. Verse number 4. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shum. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. And here we have this again, this contrast between David and Saul. Saul has been, has been left. He rejected the word of God, and now he's in trouble. He's greatly afraid, and he's looking now for answers, and he gets no answer. There's nothing for him. And there's a great comparison here. We won't take the time today, but this is happening simultaneously with David's events that we'll talk about in a moment. And you're going to find that Saul is so distressed, he goes to a witch to get some answers. He looks to the stars in his horoscope. He's trying to figure this out, and he's terrified. He has no strength. Quite the comparison that you'll see in a moment with David. Let's go now to chapter 29. Starting at verse number 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphex. And the, the Israelites pinched, pitched by the fountain in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed by their hundreds and thousands, but David and his men passed 
on the rearward with Achish. Then said one of the princes of the Philistines, what in the world are these Hebrews doing here? That's, that's, what, it's, that's, what, that's what it really it does say. What are these guys doing here? We're Philistines. We're going to battle the Hebrews. And here is David and 600 men coming with us. And they're saying, Achish, what are you thinking, man? This is not good. And Achish assures them David's been faithful. And then they say this, wait a minute. Isn't this a guy that they're singing these praises about? Saul had killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And those tens of thousands were Philistines. And these guys say, no way. We are not going to battle with these Hebrews. What a great opportunity for them to turn and fight against us. And Achish is upset about this, but he understands this is the right course of action. And so he says to David, listen, you cannot go. Verse number 8, And David said unto Achish, But what have I done? And what hast thou found in thy servant so long as I have been with thee unto this day? That they may not go fight against the enemies of my lord the king. And again, what does David mean when he says fight against the enemies of the lord the king? I really do think that David's saying, my enemies of my Lord are you. So David's sent home. And now he has to go back to Ziglag. Ziglag is about 60 miles southwest of this point. And I'm sure for David this time, as we've studied his life, wave after wave of problems and disappointments, maybe this Davidic psalm comes to his mind. You know the psalm. Psalm 30, verse number 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And maybe David is relieved now that, hey, I got out of that mess, I'm okay. But now we get to chapter 30, and if David were given the opportunity to write that psalm and continue it, he might say something like this. Yep, weeping endures for a night. Joy comes in the morning. And the next afternoon, disaster strikes. Because just when you think it couldn't get worse for David and his men, the bottom falls out. And Ziglag happens. Look at chapter 30 now of our text. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and had smitten Ziglag and had taken the women captives that were therein. And they slew neither great nor small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire, and the wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power. What happens is this. While David's gone, they take this journey back home. It's a multi-day journey, 60 miles. They come home, and what they see is their entire city is burned to the ground. They have lost everything. And the women and children are all gone. They're gone. Say, so, well, at least they're, we, we think they're alive, and the writer says they're alive. But listen, the only reason to take captives during this time was for slavery. And these men know if they're still alive, they're going to be sold into slavery. Slavery. And so they sit there and they weep. The Bible says they lift up their voices until they can't cry anymore. Some of you have been there. You, you understand this. And we understand David's distress. He weeps until he can weep no more. Now, if you're following this story, and, you're, and you've been following along, and you understand that David has done nothing wrong, David is a man after God's own heart, 
we see that. And yet time and time again, there is trouble, there's problem, there's all these difficulties. You're thinking, what in the world? That's really discouraging. Here's a man who loves God, and there's trouble upon trouble upon trouble. Listen to me. I don't want you to be discouraged by this, but I hope that you can find hope in what's happening here in the Word of God. Because it's honest with us. When we first came here, uh, we, were, we were actually at our home. We had a moving truck, and it was the weekend that we were moving our stuff to come to Chatham. This was almost 13 years ago. We had a white birch tree in the front of our house, and, and, and the boys were playing in there where there was a little bit of a break, and A.G. had climbed into the tree, our oldest son. And, and he was up there about maybe four or five feet. And he was messing around, you know, like boys do, and he fell out of the tree. It wasn't a big deal. It just fell out of the tree. But when he fell, he landed awkwardly on his, on his right arm. And it broke. And I mean, sometimes you say, I wonder if that's broken. No, this was like broke. This was his hand, and it was going this way. It was broken. Broken. The kid never screamed, never cried, said, I think, he went up to his mom and said, I think my arm is broken. And she was like, yeah, it's broken. Okay? So I said, Kim, go in, get some ice. I'm going to take him to the doctor's, get him to the emergency. And so I'm sitting there getting him ready, put in the car. And it's taking forever for Kim to get there. I'm thinking, what is she doing? And then 10 minutes later, she comes out with a bag of ice. She had passed out on the kitchen floor. A mother of three sons. It's like, woman, we don't have time for this. Get me the ice. Let's get him there. So we got him to the emergency room. And God was so gracious. There was a, a, a specialist uh, there that, that afternoon. And his name was Anthony. And he said, listen, AJ, uh, I'm going to take care of you today. I want to tell you something. I'm going to move your arm and it's going to hurt like crazy. And I thought to myself, hey, Doc, this is really a bad idea. This kid's 10 years old and you're about to tell him what I'm going to do to you is going to hurt like crazy. I, I don't know that I would do that, to be honest with you. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? And then he said this. He said, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth. And when I tell you it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt, but after that it's going to be okay. And there was something about that statement that just put A.J. to ease. Because he knew the guy was telling the truth. He was a straight shooter. Christian, listen to me. Sometimes we get involved in trouble. The Bible is, is real. It's the realism of the Word of God. It tells us already, for the believer, that we will have trouble. There's no false advertising in this book. You might find false advertising on Christian television and radio. You will not find it here. Because God says there will be times when God's people have trouble. There will be times when you're overwhelmed. There will be times when you think, I can't take any more of this. But he already told you that. He's telling you the truth. He says in John 16.33, In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good courage. I've overcome the world. And so... Take courage this morning. He says, wait a minute, don't, don't be surprised, but it's still painful. And it's painful for David. And so they're weeping. Jump down to verse number 6 now of our text, 1 Samuel 30. And David was greatly distressed. Of course, his family's gone, his stuff is gone, it's all gone. But listen why he's distressed now. For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, they were grieved, and they said, listen, we're in trouble now, and what happens is this. They start blaming everybody. David, why did you bring us here? We're here. What are we doing in, in the land of Philistines? Why do we leave this place undefended? Why do we leave our families here without anybody? And they're mad, and they're upset, and so their idea now is this. Let's kill him. I, I don't know if that's going to help, but you're going to feel better by stoning him. And, and here's the next phrase we find in verse number 6. 
But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. We're going to get back to this portion. It's, it's going to be the, the theme of this morning. But let me just help you with this encouraging yourself in the Lord. Um, let me tell you what it's not this morning. To be encouraged in the Lord, what David's talking about, it's not gospel magic. It's not, oh, look at one, woo, two, look at this. Everything's okay now. Just call on Jesus and everything goes away. It's not what it is. It's not rubbing a lamp and just saying, okay, Lord, I've had enough of this. Get me out of this. It's not an easy fix. That's not what David's doing here. It's not about venting and screaming and yelling into a pillow at the top of your lung. It's not encouraging yourself in the Lord. It's not blaming anybody. It's none of those things. We'll see what it, what it is in a few moments, but it's a turning point in David's life. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Verse number 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought hither the ephod to David. And again, here is David calling to the priest. He's looking now for counsel from the Lord. He didn't, he's not done this for chapters now, but now he does. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and, and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. What happens here is this. They just traveled 60 miles over a couple days, and now they travel 12 to 15 miles just south. They just take off. And these 600 men, 200 of them say, David, we are so exhausted, we can't take another step. So they stay there. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm one of the captives, if I'm a wife or a child of these guys, and 400 guys show up and the 200 guys were still sitting because they couldn't come get me, I have problems with that. We, we, had a, we had an activity years ago, and we were whitewater rafting with a group of, of grade 12 young people up in Pennsylvania. And we had a group, we had a, a, a what do they call, sponsor with us, a young couple. And, and in their raft, it was, it was whitewater rafting, in their raft, they, they were messing around the whole time, the whole time, not paying attention, because you got to pay attention, right? Because when you get dumped, you get dumped, and if you're not careful, you get under the rocks, you're, you're stuck. They were messing around. They came to this, this rapid called Big Dimple. And when you hit that, and it was white water everywhere, and they're messing around, they're laughing, they hit this thing, and that boat went over, and everyone went in the water. And, and what we watched, we were, we were through the water already. My wife and I looked back with our boat, and the guy whose wife was in that raft, the first thing he did was swim to shore. He, he didn't look at anybody, didn't worry about anybody. He left his wife and swam to shore. She was not impressed. Matter of fact, she went underwater several times. She thought she was going to die. Um, and I would hate to be in that raft when they're reunited. All right? The first thing my wife said, she said, Rick, I said, yes, of course, I would have swum and got you. All right? I would have swam over and got you. All right? Don't worry about it. But these guys just say, I can't go on anymore. So David leaves them, and they pursue. And, and, and listen to this. They take off. They don't know. God didn't say, here's where you go. They just take off south. They figure that's where the rating comes from. And something very interesting happens here. They pursue. 400 go on. Verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. Let me just stop here. I'm not going to stop here long, but there's something interesting here. David's state of mind is not good. We might say he's having a bad day. His house was burned to the ground. 
His wife and children are gone, and all stuff has disappeared. He's in the middle of something really big here. I want you to see the kindness he shows to this man. Christian, listen to me. There is never a reason for you or for me because we're having a bad day to be unkind to people. David treats this man with respect and care. And so he feeds the man. Verse number 13. Or 12, let's go to 12. And they give him a piece of cake. It goes on midway through. Oh, where am I at now? What did I miss? Let's just go to 13. And David said to him, who, to whom thou belongest, and whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of Amalekite, and my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. And we made an invasion. He says, we went to Ziglag, we burned it with fire. Verse 15, and David said to him, canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of thy master, and I will bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon the earth eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. I want you to notice something. This, this small providential act. He runs across this Egyptian who his master left him, and this, is, this small act is the undoing of all these Amalekites. And I'm sure that this master, three days prior to this, had no idea that dropping this guy off and leaving him for dead would be his undoing. But it is. And so they find the camp, these guys are eating, drinking, and they're dancing, and they're partying, they got it all together, they've had a great day, and all of a sudden now, 400 angry guys with swords fall on them. And, and only 400 of the bad guys escape, they get on camel and take off. Verse number 17, And David smote them from twilight even to the evening of the next day, and there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men which rode upon camels. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And so everything was recovered. So, at the end of the story, let me just say this to you. David's decision was terrible. This was his own fault. He got there on his own doing, and yet, in God's grace and in God's mercy, he extracted him out of the situation, and he recovered all. What a great God we have that even in our stupidity, he shows us mercy. And I'm sure this morning, if we took the time, we could testify of all the dumb things we have done, and yet God in his grace and mercy has delivered us. In David's life now, the bottom has fallen out. When he thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. And what does David do? Listen, we all find ourselves here every now and then. And maybe you're here now. Maybe you're not, but you might be heading that way. What do we do when the bottom falls out? What do we do when we think it can't get any worse in our lives? And it does. I'll tell you what some people do. When this happens for some people, they run away from God. They could come to church. They quit fellowshipping. They quit showing up. They take off. And it happens all the time. a matter of fact, it happened in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 6, about verse 67 or so, Jesus has been preaching. And you should, you should really check out what Jesus says because in his preaching, a lot of people are offended. They don't like what he's saying. And he just keeps on going. And after a while, what happens is his followers say, this is too much, I'm done with this. And the Bible says, many of them went away. They left. Jesus' ministry bottomed out. And he turns to the disciples and says, listen, will you guys also go away? And Peter, this great quote, he says, to whom shall we go? 
thou hast the words of eternal life. Christian, listen to me. When the bottom falls out, where are you going to go? There is no place. We have the one who has the words of eternal life. And David knew this. And David ran to God. And there's something now about this story that I believe is a turning point in David's life. And for us this morning, as we face the same situations, we can find grace and help as David did. Look back at our text in 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning and find your way now back to verse number 6. David is grieved, everything's gone. He says at the end of verse, but David encouraged himself in, now watch the next statement, in the Lord, this is Yahweh, Jehovah, in the Lord, his God. The first thing that David does when the bottom drops out is this. He remembers he has a personal relationship with the God of heaven. It did not say David encouraged himself and his family. They were gone. He didn't say David encouraged himself and some really good spiritual friends. They wanted to stone him. It didn't say, hey, David wanted to encourage himself in all the stuff he had and how God had blessed him and all the things that he enjoyed. He had nothing. He couldn't say that. And we shouldn't say that either. Too many of us, when the bottom drops out, we do the very opposite of what David did. We go reaching for somebody or something, and we try to, we try to find our comfort there. I, I read an article just recently, and uh, it was interesting to me. It was an article about draining people. Dave, do you have that? Put that on the wall if you do. And this might not mean anything to you, but I'm going to get to this. It's, it's all going to connect in a minute. Trust me. Um, it's all energy drainers. And it's all about people who, who drain the life out of others. And the subtitle was Energy Vampires. Energy Vampires. And there's a picture of a, of a guy just, you know, this, this mist coming out of his face and the other person just sucking it in. And these are people who draw all of their help and encouragement from somebody else. And look at the, just look at the list. This is a problem for everybody, but it's in Christianity. These people are intrusive. They show poor boundaries. They are overtly dramatic, making mountains out of molehills. Um, they're, they're upset about critical about everything in their lives. They're chronic complainers. Nothing is ever good. Nothing is ever right. They're argumentative. Um, even things that are insignificant, uh, they have a big deal blowout about. They're constantly negative. They're unable to accept responsibility. And they're always blaming everyone but themselves. Listen to me. You know this. You know people like this. And the problem is Christian people do this. Something happens, and here's what we do. Oh, man, if this guy, please, Steve, if you could just encourage me. I need you, Steve. I need you to tell me. You know that, right? He's he's here for me, right? I go from him, and then I go to this person. I I need you. I need encouragement. You've got to tell me. And we go, and we try to suck all that we can out of these people. And we suck the life out of them because we are trying to get from them what they can't give us. It's impossible. And so you go from one victim to the next because you drain the life out of them. I'm talking about Christian people. Listen to this verse. This is an amazing verse. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 13, God is talking to his people. And he says this, You have committed two evils. Here's the first one. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You might not think that means anything. There's no connection here, but there is. In Palestine, there are three sources of water. The first is living water. They call it living water. It is water from streams, from the mountains that, that roll through and they, and they run. 
It's pure. It's fresh. They call them living waters. The second type is from wells. Uh, there are springs under the earth and there's wells. That's the, the next best. The third best or the worst is cisterns. That's where the water runs off and it's collected into a cistern where you then get water out of it. And here's what God says. My people committed two evils. The first thing is they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. What he's saying there is what you need, I am. And you have turned from me, and instead of getting what you need from me, what you have done is you've looked for somebody else, a broken cistern. You know, a broken cistern doesn't hold much water. It holds mud and sludge and dirt. And for too many of us, what we have done is this. We have moved from the living God, and our first response is, you've got to give me what I need. You've got to encourage me. I need you to tell me something good. And David doesn't do that. David says, wait a minute, I've got a living God. I have a personal relationship with him. You see, it's one thing to say, God is the shepherd of Israel. It's another thing to say, the Lord is my shepherd. It's one thing to say, Jesus, the Son of God. It's another thing to say what Paul said in, in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. David could not say, I'm going to encourage myself and my family or my friends or my stuff. But what he could say is this, I will encourage myself in the Lord my God. Hey man, don't exchange living waters for sludge. Because we're all made out of dust. And you will never get from that person what you think you need. Never. And I don't care if it's your husband, your wife, your parents, your kids, your friends. It cannot work. You're exchanging the living God for sludge. And David says, I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to encourage myself. So he has this personal relationship. Number two. Look back at our text. It says, encourage yourself in the Lord. Verse number six. And it doesn't give us much detail here. But because we've been going through this narrative, this is not the first time we find this phrase. We find this phrase in 1 Samuel 23. And maybe you remember the story, maybe you don't, but in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan comes to David. He finds him in the wilderness. David, again, is struggling. And it says there that he found him and he strengthened his hand in the Lord. Same idea. Now watch what Jonathan does in the next verse. He says, listen, David, here's how I'm going to strengthen you in the Lord. I'm going to remind you that you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And someday you'll be king. Now listen, Jonathan didn't make that up himself. You know where that came from? That's the word of God. Those were God's promises. And so certainly when David says he's encouraging himself in the Lord, he is looking then to the word of God and the promises of God. Listen to me, when the bottom falls out, we go to our living God first and foremost, and then we go to his word. His word. This morning, listen to me. Maybe you're here this morning, and uh, you have doubts. You ever go through the Christian life and have doubts? You ever wonder, man, is this, is this legit? Is this real? I know some of you do, we've talked about it. Sometimes, I, in my life, there have been times where I thought, Rick, is this, I mean, is this all real? I have my doubts. I, and, and, and if you're thinking, you'll have your doubts. And when we do, we go to Mark chapter 9. Where Jesus says, if you'll believe, I'll heal this child of yours. And the guy says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
when you have moments in your life when you feel it's you against the world, and nobody cares, nobody knows, and you've been separated from everyone, you go to Romans chapter 8, and you find that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not life, not death, not angels, principalities, powers, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God. That's the Word of God for you, for me. When we're anxious, and we can't sleep at night, and we worry, and those thoughts go over and over again in our heads, we go to Philippians chapter 4, and it says, listen, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Give it to Him. And the peace that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, when life is good and, and you're thankful for every good gift, you can even thank God for snow because it's pretty and you don't have to shovel it. Someone else does it and say, Lord, you've been good and my, I feel like I could just explode and I'm just gracious for everything you've done. Go to James chapter 1 and realize that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When your kids are bullied at school, and there's some punk kid there that is so insecure that he has to make everybody else feel bad, you go to Joshua chapter 1, and you remind him of the words of the Lord, and says, listen, don't be fearful, be courageous, be strong, for I am with you. When our girls have believed the lies of this world about body image, and our little girls and our teenagers and our wives and our daughters are saying, I gotta do this. This is what Hollywood says. I gotta look like this and this is a perfect woman. And this is what it means. You go to Psalm 139 and you tell them, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you struggle and your heart is broken and you think there is no repairing it, you think it's done. I've had it. I'll never be the same. You go to Psalm 147 and find that He is the one that heals the brokenhearted and mends all of our wounds. When you're grieving and in anguish and feel like nobody understands your hurt and your pain and your sorrow, you won't, you won't tell anybody and you feel alone and nobody understands. You go to Isaiah 53 and find the one who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with all of our griefs. When your world is changing and your kids or your spouse or your friends, you don't even recognize them anymore and you're not sure what planet they're on anymore and it troubles you. You go to Malachi chapter 3 and you find, I am the Lord God who never changes and you cling to that. Do you understand something this morning? We have the promises of the Word of God. And David encouraged himself in those promises. There's a third thing he did. Back in our text, 1 Samuel chapter 30, look if you would now at verse number 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the, the ephod. And Abiathar brought hither the ephod, and David inquired of the Lord. He had his personal relationship with God, he had the promises of God, and now he has access to the presence of God. The priest in the Old Testament, the ephod was a way to, to say, okay, Lord, what do you want? Where should I go? What should I do? And David says, what I need right now is this. God, I need to hear from you. Priest. Get me in. I, I need something, man. Now listen, here's, here's the unfortunate thing. We don't have any Abiathars anymore. Right? And here we don't have any backward collars anymore. No priest. We have something much better. Hebrews chapter 4. Starting in verse number 14. Let me introduce you to him this morning. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, Son of, Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points where he was tempted, just like we are. He knows, he feels, he understands. And then he goes on and says this. Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Can I tell you something this morning? You have something far better than a Abiathar. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a high priest, who says, come into my presence, cast your care upon me, I care for you, I feel your pain, I know you have access to me, the God of heaven, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And David encouraged himself in his Lord. In his Lord. Sometimes in struggles, we think, if I just had the, why, Lord? Just give me the information. Give me the understanding. Why is this happening? What do I need to know? Listen to me. In those times, you don't need knowledge. You don't need education. You don't need information. What you need is endurance. What you need is stand on your feet. What you need is a priest to go to and say, Lord, here I am. I'm struggling. Help me. Encourage me. Strengthen me. That's what we need. Listen to me. There will be times in all of our lives, and we've been, I don't know what it is, this is a season in our church, through Sunday morning, Sunday evening, we've been talking about struggling and suffering and people having problems and issues. And maybe you're thinking, man, I don't know what you're talking about, my life is great. If it's great, thank God for it. And understand, there are only three kinds of people in this room. Ones who are in storms right now, ones who are heading out of the storm they were just in, and everybody else who's heading into one eventually the bottom will drop out for you. And when it does, I want to encourage you, don't be running away from God. David didn't do that. He ran to God, a personal Savior. The promises of his word and a high priest and his access into his presence. What more could we ask for? What more do we need? One of my favorite authors in the 19th century was A.W. Tozer. And he has some, just, I mean, almost everything he wrote is quotable. Um, and he says this, he's talking to believers and he says, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations, and I'll just add something, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations and the limitations of others, okay? How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to the God who has none. Did you get that? How completely satisfying living water to turn from all of our limitations and the limitations of everyone in this room to the God who has none. None. Believer, that's our God. And that's enough for even a Baptist to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He's good. When the bottom drops out, you don't have to run away. You have a God who is the living God. He has given you his word. He has given you his spirit. He has given you access into his presence. And you can be completely satisfied in this God who has no limitations. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.